Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. And I'm Michael McMullen. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. Uh, we've had a morning off, which I think everyone is, uh, has been very happy with, but we're ready to uh, just look back on the first round. I know there's a couple of matches still to finish as we record this, but... Um, it's been uh, it's been quite the start, but we'll come to that shortly. Obviously, the one thing that has happened this week is that Barry Hearn has announced he's standing down as chairman of Matchroom and chairman of World Snooker Tour. Uh, he's still going to be what they describe as president in an advisory role. And and uh, if, if you know Barry, you know that if he, if he wants to advise, he will do. Um, mm. But it is still a moment. I mean, I suppose we all knew this was coming. No one's no one's getting any younger. Um, but still, quite a moment, really. Yeah, he hinted at this. I did a piece with him in December 2019. Well, the December 2019 issue of the magazine, because it was 10 years since he'd become chairman that month. It's hard to believe, actually, that that was still only last season. It just seems a lifetime ago. But he did hint at it then that he wasn't talking about stepping down imminently, but certainly he felt he was in his final years doing the job. And I guess he had the health scare, didn't he, round about this time last year or maybe a little later. And that obviously prompted things a little more. He, he spoke actually in that same interview about what a role Steve Dawson had played in the success story. And you sense then that he would be quite happy to hand the role over to Steve. And I think the feeling is he's going to be a very good successor. What, what really matters is that Barry has put in place a culture in World Snooker that's very different to what it perhaps was in the past, where it was just, well, anything will do. Let's just put together any sort of a circuit, not make any great effort. It's so different now. The whole culture is how can we do this well? How can we do it better? How can we have more of everything? And that's now so ingrained in the staff who work behind the scenes to make all Barry's ideas uh, turn into reality that I think it'll be pretty much business as usual. It's never entirely that when there's a change of leadership. I'm sure Steve Dawson will have his own ideas about things, but by and large, I expect it's all going to continue much as it's been for the last decade or so. But he comes into the job at a very, very challenging time. But that's all for the future. I'm sure now it's no coincidence at all. Barry being who he is, 
that he timed this announcement during the World Championship so that everyone, including all the TV broadcasters and everyone else, else will have ample opportunity to pay tribute to him over the coming week or so. But we'll all be delighted to do it because what an incredible job he's done. Yeah, and like you say, he's not brought in some outsiders. Steve Dawson has been working with him since the mid-80s, so he knows Matchroom like the back of his hand. Different sort of character, I think. Uh, but everyone's a different sort of character to Barry. Uh, but yeah, look, I, just, I think he just he just deserves our thanks for what he's done. And like you say, all the all the the, the culture he's uh, brought in there that's been encapsulated in the last year. Look at the work they've done to get everything on during this pandemic. Incredible, really. So um, yeah, we will miss him. But I, having said that, I suspect he's not going anywhere. Really, he will be in the background, I'm sure. And uh, still always good value in interviews and uh, yeah, it's just done a great job. And, uh, and of course kept snooker at the crucible. He signed that big deal to keep it there. It's there for about another five years guaranteed. And um, you know, I'm sure he would like it to, to remain there. So the crucible of course uh, is what, what we're all focusing on. Uh, this will be a shorter podcast than usual. We're just going to sort of look back at what's happened so far. Uh, well, over to you really. You've been, uh, you've been watching the world mm. challenge. How would you, how would you the, some of the first round, bear in mind, we've still got, Two finishes as we record this, Selby and Murphy. But how 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 have you seen it all? It's a little bit of a slow burner. I mean, the opening weekend wasn't really that much going on, but then we had a day with a couple of deciders, and suddenly it's starting to uh, pick up a bit of momentum. Been some one-sided matches, but they have been decent stories in their own right. Actually, I thought the uh, there were a number of talking points from the Mark Williams match, which in the end uh, turned out to be quite comfortable at ten four, even though there was only one frame in it going into the final session. Um, not struggling to think of any major shocks that have been along the way. And, and for me, the best match so far has been Bingham against Ding, albeit that it brought an end to my somewhat outrageous tip mm. that uh, Ding might win the title. I could, of course, have really stuck my neck out and gone for the six times in defending champion, well, like some people did. Well, but... let's, let, well let's, let's, <laughs> let's first of all do the joke about, you know, your tip didn't even last as long as the European Super League. Let's do that. Mm, fair enough, um, yeah. Well, the point is, I tipped the person I thought was going to win. Now, if he was just hmm. if it was just going to be left field choices, you know, I would have gone for Lou Hyashan or someone. But you know, I tipped the person who I thought was going to win, which is Ronnie O'Sullivan. I have to say, looking at the second round draw, you know, I, I'm not confident in that tip at all. Um, hmm. I think he could lose to McGill actually, but um, but that was my tip, and uh, you know, just because he's won it six times. The, here's the thing, right? And I was thinking about this. Really, so many people I've seen on the TV newspapers. Online, so many people have deliberately avoided tipping Judd Trump, who you said you were going to tip, just because mm. it is the obvious choice. But for so many years at the Crucible, the obvious choice won. Davis, Hendry, you know, even Ronnie, Higgins, Williams at times, you just felt they were going to win. Mark Selby more recently. So Judd Trump is the one we should have tipped, really. Um, but you didn't. You tipped Ding and he lost. No, yeah, indeed. Well, I mean, he's going to have so many regrets about the match. I mean, the black that he missed, frame ball at a key yeah. stage. I mean, that was just terrible. And then the last frame, we'll never know for certain whether that red that he mm. missed went. But Joe Johnson in commentary, who someone I would really listen to on something like that, he was adamant that the pot didn't go. And all the indications were that it was right. And you see it sometimes, don't you, with players when... The winning line is there. They talk themselves into believing a ball will go if they've Definitely. run out of position. Yeah. yeah. But the thing is, Ding had actually played onto that red. And that, I think, was the, was the really big error. Bingham, of course, was just fantastic in the way he took his chance from there. Wonderful shot. He'd run slightly out of ideal position with two reds left. But staked everything on it, really. Uh, great pot on the red. But then to cannon the other red over the middle pocket... Well, I mean, that was a real match-winning shot, and he, he deserved it in the end. But Ding, again, left with regrets. 
And I think, what, he'll be 35 by the next time he goes to the Crucible. Not running out of time by any means. He could have another 10 years to win the World Championship. But fact is, he still hasn't done it. And many times he's gone there you know, as a much better player than you would feel he is now. And he still hasn't done the job. So real disappointment for him. But a great performance from Bingham to finish it off the way he did. Match of the round for me. Yeah, and let's talk about performances. Because I think we probably agree, not putting words in your mouth, that performances in the first round don't really mean that much other than you if as long as you win obviously now mm. a, a classic case of this is a match coming up everyone's looking forward to which is John Higgins Mark Williams John Higgins played about as bad as he could in that first session I mean I did it and he was he got three frames out of it which says a lot about him but mm. he didn't play well at all well until the end of the match Mark Williams played well pretty much all day particularly at night you know he looked really really good so he played a lot better than Higgins but that might not count for anything actually in their second round match yeah, I'm not a believer at all in first-round performance as an indicator. I mean, p- players say it, it's just about getting through. It's become such a cliche, but it, it's absolutely correct. You think back over the years, what players have played really well in the first round and ended up winning the championship? It's people like Hendry, Davis, O'Sullivan, Higgins. But they play well most of the time anyway. And they're so good that you you feel they could start off that way and sustain it for two weeks. For most other players, actually playing well in round one and trying to sustain it all the way through to the finish, might actually be a bit too much to ask. And you think of Mark Allen last year, played brilliantly in the first round, didn't even get past the first round. So it is all about it. But I do feel now from the second round, this is when you need to start showing some title credentials because generally players who do go on to win it do start showing some form at this stage. And I mean, you mentioned Williams and Higgins there. Well, Higgins was so relieved, wasn't he? He'd been you know, in a very difficult spot. He'd managed to take control of the match and he, he just looked completely different those last couple of frames. The shackles had been thrown off. The earlier inhibitions were gone and he surged for the line with all the quality we've come to expect of him. And what a match we have to look forward to now between uh, between these two, three years on from the greatest final ever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, performances, obviously they're, they are important to when you're behind. And for me, Possibly the performance of the round was Kyron Wilson, who was uh, yeah. it was five one down to Gary Wilson, and you saw at that point the sort of it all click click into gear for Wilson Kyron. That is, uh, I got into terrible problems remembering to use the first names rather than the surnames in that match. Um, but yeah, you know he started badly. He seemed to be overthinking things. He seemed to frankly be you know thinking too much about the fact it was the World Championship, it was the Crucible. But then when he was in a hole, he dug himself out, and was, I thought it was very impressive and. You know, this has become a bit of a cliche. I've seen it mocked a little bit, calling people crucible players. But it's not just... I understand when people say, well, you can't call you know Hawkins and Wilson crucible players if they haven't won it. That's not the point. The point is they're most likely to win matches, actually, at this tournament, particularly Barry. Uh, they're playing each other now. This is where, if they're going to win anywhere, it's going to be here. They've won a lot of matches between them at this venue. So that, again, is a really interesting match. People forget because maybe they're not regarded as glamour players. They played a great match a couple of years ago in this tournament. There were centuries flying in all over the shop. Yes, that's right, yeah. Kyron and Gary, uh, this, this is one for Judd. He likes a bit of 80s nostalgia. Yeah. You might say you turned into a Wilson's classic. Could we, could we maybe wow. have that? Yeah, wow. there we go. Yeah, that, that came from the dark recesses. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very impressive from Kyron in the end. Um, that, of course, was the one I picked out, wasn't it, as, as the potential yeah. big upset of the first round, and I was feeling quite smug at 5-1. But, uh, yeah... Very good composure from Kyron Wilson to uh, to see it through from there. He's he's kind of competing against history a bit because when someone gets to the final for the first time, doesn't win it, people say, oh, well, he'll be 
ready to go one step further next year. Well, that's only ever actually happened once. That was Mark Williams who did that. In fact, there have only ever been two instances at the Crucible of any player losing in the final and then winning the championship the next year. Steve Davis in 87 was the other one. But uh, yeah, he underlined again how he's really shown, I think, in the last 12 months that he does have the credentials, Kyron Wilson, now to win the world championship without it being any sort of a surprise at all. And he's got through the first round. He can settle into it now a bit and get off and running. Let's just rewind to Saturday. Obviously, Ronnie O'Sullivan began against Mark Joyce. Um, we were wondering, well, I, I mean, we both sort of said we thought Ronnie would win that because we just mm. felt that Joyce, it's not just a debutant, he's waiting so long to get there. And Ronnie didn't settle, but Mark Joyce didn't settle. And in the end, O'Sullivan made those three centuries, which maybe slightly distorted how he played overall. But the fact is, he still got the job done very comfortably in a match he didn't play well in. Yeah, Joyce looked very nervous to me, actually. And he, he had his chances and wasn't able to take them. You know, as I commented, uh, it's, it's the uh, greatest number of bad balls I've seen missed by someone from Walsall since I played against you in Bournemouth back in the 1990s. More, more nostalgia there. Yeah, uh, yeah, nothing if not a niche reference. But anyway, yeah, carry on. yeah that, I think that might be peak niche. Mm. But yeah, I mean, you know, he'll have regrets about it. Not so much the fact that he lost the match because he wouldn't expect to beat Ronnie O'Sullivan first day at the Crucible. But he had the chance to put Ron, not quite put Ronnie away, I suppose, but at least put himself in a strong position early on in the match and, and even at times in the evening session and passed up good opportunities. But he, he looked very, very nervous to me, actually, and not surprising, I suppose. And I guess the next time he goes to the Crucible, chances are he won't be playing first up against the defending champion. Uh, but of course, it took him a long time to get to the Crucible at all. Who's to say he will return there? But yeah, O'Sullivan, again, a bit like Higgins, he did look a bit relieved towards the end. He felt he'd shaken off his man and finished it strongly. Uh, and again, performances in the first round. I mean, O'Sullivan's the classic example. We've seen it from him so many times in all kinds of tournaments where he looks unbeatable early on and then goes out the next round and can't perform at all. But very, very tough one for him now against McGill, who again has got such a history of beating top players at the Crucible. We both tipped Jamie Jones to beat uh, mm. Steve Maguire, which, which he duly did 10-4 uh, from 3-0 down. Um, and I think what we said about Maguire was borne out. He hadn't played for two months, and you could kind of tell. He, he looked rusty. Jamie Jones has got a sort of unique story, we, you know, which we've referred to before. Obviously, he got, got suspended, went off the tour, had to go and get a, a sort of real-world job. Didn't know if he'd play again. Came through the Q school. Has proven how good he is. But he's a bit of a man on a mission, isn't he? And that, that's, that's clear. And... Uh, you know, lowest rank qualifier and all that, but it's interesting at the moment, and we don't know what's going to happen with Sean Murphy, but at the moment, only two qualifiers have won and they're mm. playing each other. I mean, you don't think of Bingham as a qualifier, but the fact is he is. Yeah. I saw someone actually refer to him the other day as a qualifier while doing the air brackets. Well, I mean, he, he, <laughs> <laughs> how does that work? He was, yeah. I mean, I know the point he was making, but he was a qualifier. He did, mm. he did come through the qualifying rounds. Bingham and Maguire look very, very... <sighs> similar to me in terms of their potential, their ability, and how good they are. The big difference to me is that Stuart Bingham seems to enjoy every minute out in the arena. Stephen Maguire, a lot of the time, looks like he's not enjoying it there. And I think we see that particularly at the Crucible. And his record there is just abysmal in recent times. In the nine years since he got to the semifinals for the second time, he's been in the quarters twice. But all the other times, he's gone out in the first round. And, well, I mean, yeah, I think he is getting to the point now of time running out for him. But, you mean, in the modern game, with so many tournaments, you cannot go two months without playing and then come to the Crucible and expect to deliver your best. 
And I said when we were doing the preview, I love watching Jamie Jones. There's just something very, very watchable about him, the way he sort of bounces around the table. He seems to be really enjoying it as well. And I think he's enjoying it more than ever at the moment because, as you say, he's gone through some dark times over the last couple of years. I could see him getting further. Shot of the championship, of course. You can send us your postcards. And mm-hmm. next, next week, we'll read out the winner and your full address, which is what used to happen yeah. uh, back in the 80s, David Vine. Uh, but uh, I think always with the shot of the championship, context is important. And in the deciding frame, Jack Lazowski knocked in a red uh, and made a break of it to beat Ali Carter, uh, which was just superb. I mean, you know, in a frame one, it would have been superb, but it was nine each at the time. That was an extraordinary match because there were a lot of mistakes but as ever in snooker, that actually added to the drama. Um, both deciders actually were on the same day. I did both of them back to back. Was asking Carter, yeah. Bingham Ding, or actually I didn't do the end of Bingham Ding because 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 they, they, they came back for a third off, session. Yeah, back, yeah. But I was very impressed with Jack. I, I did think in that match. I mean, I tipped Ali Carter, and I thought if it went close, Carter would win that match. But fair play to Jack. That's a good sign. It's a sort of match. Maybe even a year ago, certainly a couple of years ago, I don't think he would have won. Yeah, and he's done very little at the Crucible, really. You know, when you consider, I think he's been a pro now 11 years. Mm. Very little to show for it in World Championship terms. Um, I love watching Carter as well. I mean, there's there's something great about the fact that he doesn't hide in any way how much it means to him and how determined he is. He never shies away from that. Uh, I remember seeing him once looking absolutely, you know, inconsolable after losing a match at the Championship League, you know, which obviously <laughs> is not is not one of the biggest events on the circuit by any means. But I, I love to see that, actually. And, you know, he battles away and it means a lot to him. And he doesn't hide that at all. So, I mean, t- to lose the match the way he did, having at one stage looked like he might be taking control of it, it's going to take him a long time to, to put that behind him. But, yeah, Lazowski is someone you'd love to see go a long way in the Championship. Uh, but you've got to get through the early rounds, and he's not managed to get past the second round so far. Indeed, he got an absolute hammering in the second round. I think it was three years ago now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how he can progress from there. But again, I mean, that was part of that day that I think the championship really started to take off when we had the two deciders after what had been, I think, a, a pretty quiet start. Been a few early finishes. I've seen people say, oh, it's not the same if he doesn't finish late. I think it's worth saying that I think our memories are slightly distorted. I mean, there have been a lot mm. of late finishes over the years, but... Actually, for people who grew up watching snooker back in the day, a lot of their memories of late night snooker because that's when the TV broadcasts were. You know, yeah, they, they, that's come right, on, yeah. they were coming for highlights at half 11 and you would associate snooker with late nights. He didn't it always finish late. There, were, there used to be early finishes as well. I think because the players, you know, well, they're better and they play quicker now, it's more likely to finish early if you've got two finishes that, you know, that are quick matches. Um, but, you know, it didn't always finish after midnight. That's, that's a complete myth. We're going to look forward in a minute to the second round, but how have you found watching it with the crowd? Now, obviously, there's not a lot of people there. It's a real rigmarole to get in, and you have to be really committed even to find anywhere to stay and all that sort of thing. Quite a few hardy souls have got in. It'll be interesting to see if it does increase. But my view is it has made a difference to the players, just, just the fact that there are people watching them. Night and day, the difference. I mean, even having a small crowd... and. They're allowed to have it one third full. I think for a lot of the sessions, it hasn't even been that. I assume that's maybe because a lot of people are nervous about going and that's that's fair enough. But just to have some crowd, even a small one, makes a world of difference. Last year, you were so aware throughout the championship of the fact that there was nobody there on, on all but three of the days. This time, you're not thinking about that at all. You're not You're not thinking about the fact that it's not a full house. Just the fact that there's a crowd there at all. And it's real life applause. It's not someone with an applause button trying to pick their moment. It's just made such a difference to it. And, you know, I'm I'm not going to be going over this year because, as you say, I mean, there are so many difficulties with travel and getting in and hotels and all the rest of it. 
Um, so I'm just watching the whole thing on television this time. And it has made such an enormous difference just to have a crowd in. And particularly when you know that those crowds are going to get bigger and bigger and it will be the proper atmosphere towards the finish. But yeah, enormous, enormous difference to it all and, uh, and, and the spectacle that it creates. Fair play to the people who've gone. It's funny, actually, Rachel Casey at Eurosport, she interviewed three fans on the first day. Uh, the first one was Kelly Barker, who's a, yeah. who we know is a big snooker fan. Um, and the third one was Dave Tyndall. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, I didn't know Dave was there. Yeah, regular correspondent. He went to watch Ronnie. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, so so it was quite you, funny to see people we actually know being interviewed. You mentioned Kelly there, and she was sitting with Chris Downer, as she always did. I've seen them in virtually every session. They seem yeah. to pop up in, in different parts of the, uh, of the arena. Now, you know, you look back over the last year and how the whole world and all of our lives and various ways have been turned upside down. What could possibly be more reassuring yeah. and more indicative of things returning to normal than seeing Kelly Barker and Chris Downer sitting side by side at the Crucible? I mean, that, that, that's the most comforting thing of all that, uh, that I think we've seen through the whole thing. It's great. And, uh, but on this, actually, we have an email, which I want to read out, from Alison Hill, who says, we love your podcast and wondered if you had an opinion on the event research program and how this is being used to allow spectators to attend the current World Championships. Just to break in, obviously, um, this, the World Championship is part of a, a pilot scheme to get indoor audiences back safely into uh, indoor events of the UK. So this is a government program. Alison said, following our tickets being cancelled last year, we booked tickets for our son, who's a huge snooker fan and player, to attend the semi-finals for his 10th birthday this year. We were notifi- notified by WST two weeks ago that the event research programme stipulates that no clinically extremely vulnerable pregnant adults or children under 18 years of age, due to a greater risk of transmission, are allowed in. Research programme requires a full track and trace programme, two COVID tests, and masks to be worn at all times. And findings from these follow-on tests will be analysed to help future events going forward. While we absolutely support COVID measures and the need to reintroduce events activities in a gradual and controlled manner, the decision to stop those under 18 years of age not only has devastated our son, but also makes no sense. Those who are clinically vulnerable can choose still to attend and not declare their health issues if they wish with informed consent. Our son, however, cannot do anything about his age. There are many tickets still on sale for most days, including the semis and final, and we have been forced not to attend. Our son has attended school throughout all lockdowns due to me being a key worker. His school has had only a couple of cases of COVID in 12 months, and these are out of term time. They have parents doing weekly tests and full COVID measures and bubbles in place, which has worked amazingly in a school with over 500 young children. My point being, based on all current research data and recommendations, the transmission rate in young children who attend primary school is very low, far lower than in adults. So how can the rule you cannot attend if you're under 18 years of age on the grounds of high risk of transmission be valid. I've spoken with Crucible Management who state these are government rules and they cannot do anything about it. WST have refused to answer two emails from me. I've also emailed the government sports minister who has not responded. I look forward to hearing your opinions and impact that these rules are having on the current tournament attendance at future sporting events. Uh, thank you, Alison, for your email. And I'm very uh, disappointed on your behalf that you know your son couldn't go. He's 10 years of age, obviously looking forward to it. I mean, I went there for the first time when I was 13 and it was a magical experience. So I'm, I'm you know, disappointed on your behalf. Obviously, you know, it, it does sound kind of um, maybe it doesn't make sense, but they are the rules. The Crucible can't do anything about it. And, and actually, World Snooker can't do anything about it. That's not to say they shouldn't have replied to you. They should have done, clearly. Mm. Uh, you bought tickets for the championship, but they do have to abide by the rules. They're the government rules. I think a lot of people feel that there are um, a lot of anomalies with the whole COVID structure the rules and so on uh the guidelines and believe me it's the same wherever you work including down here 
uh, Eurosport. But um, yeah, I, I I feel sad for him. He was looking forward to going. Um, all I can say is I hope that you know you, you that the situation changes and he's able to go next year. I guess the the issue there isn't about the the risk and the transmissibility involved. I suppose you know it is an experiment what's going on there, and people have to consent to be part of that experiment. And legally, can you really consent to something like that when you're under 18? I think that's probably more the issue than anything else. I imagine if you explain that to the young lads, that would be of no consolation to them. That must be absolutely devastating at 10 years of age. I mean, I'm disappointed enough, having been there for over 20 years, that I'm up there this year and I'm 44. That must be absolutely devastating. But hopefully, you know, it would be nice to think actually that maybe something could be done there to arrange for him to go next year and meet his favourite player or whatever, something like that. So. Um, it, there are all kinds of anomalies, but that's just the world we're living in at the moment. But uh, look, hopefully he'll, he'll, he'll be there next year and uh, he'll put that uh, that huge disappointment behind him. We're going to keep this podcast short because, uh, you know, obviously we're in the thick of the world championship. People don't necessarily have time uh, to listen too much. But I did get this one this morning, which is quite interesting, uh, from Matthew Shirley. He said, quick question for you both, which you might want to discuss. I was chatting with a mate of mine the other day about players who had a lot of potential but never fulfilled their early promise. One player he mentioned I'd forgotten about was the Australian Quinton Han. Mm. I'm sure you guys remember him better than me because he was a bit of a bad boy. And obviously his career came to a very abrupt end due to match-fixing allegations. He was seemingly never to be seen again. Anyway, I went back and watched a few videos of him on YouTube and whilst he could be wild and reckless at times, there's no doubt he was a very gifted and flamboyant player who could have gone on to great things. Just wondering if you had any personal memories of watching or meeting Quinton. And there's a wider question, <laughs> whether there are any players, in your opinion, who could have been ranking champions but never were for one reason or the other. Well, uh, of course, Quinton, the famously Quinton, once won a match at the Crucible, and he wasn't playing for another week, so he went home. Now, when I say he went home, he went home to Australia. He flew home to Australia after winning his first round match at the Crucible. I think Mark Williams heavily beat him in the second round, but that is a fact. Quinton Han uh, was a very, very talented player who didn't have it upstairs, basically, to be a top player. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can't really add a, a huge amount to that. He, he, he got to a few semis, as I recall. Uh, certainly one of them was in the Irish Masters. And I remember he was at, he was at his carry-on there, smashing up the pack and everything. And Fergal O'Brien, there's our weekly mention of him, yeah. was uh, in the TV studio. And uh, he absolutely slated him, saying, I'd love to be out there playing in the semi-final. He's out there doing it, and he's not taking it seriously. But but here's the thing, right? You mentioned the break-off. He used to smash the pack, basically. Yeah. Now, there's this sort of rather confected controversy, I think, about mm. Mark Williams' break-off shot, which Mark aired himself last night in the Eurosport studio in quite stringent terms. Um, now, if you're going to compare, like, say, which of the two should you should you ban? Obviously, it's both a choice. And if you want to smash them, then that's your choice. But surely that is more detrimental to snooker because what it's suggesting is you don't really care one way or the other. At least Mark Williams is determined not to leave a red on. Yeah, I remember actually uh, one year at the Crucible. I think it was actually after he had played Mark Williams, funnily enough, in 2002 or thereabouts. Actually, no, it wasn't 2002. But whenever it was anyway, uh, at the end of the match, Quinton Han came into the press conference and you just asked him directly, why did you keep smashing up the pack off the break? And curiously, I think he looked over at Mike Ganley as if he was going to intervene or something. Then he said to you, do you want me to answer that question? And he said, well, yes, because that's why I asked it, basically. <laughs> and um, yeah, so look, as for this, I mean, the, the, the current business, I don't see any reason whatsoever to ban it. I don't know what the problem is at all. Um, you, you could look at it and say, 
if there had been a load of really slow frames as a result of it, that maybe it would be something to look at. Even then, I'd have my doubts as to whether it should be banned, but that hasn't even been the case anyway. And the other thing is, even if some players have a problem with it, well, I can tell you now, if Mark Williams wins the World Championship mm. doing that break-off, there'll be several of them at least thinking very seriously about whether they should do it. It'll be so, like Dick, Dick Fosbury of snooker. Dick Fosbury, exactly, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, we're, yeah, we're getting more and more up-to-date <laughs> with our references, aren't we? Back 50, 60 years of that. Yeah. But, um, so, uh, what was I saying there? Quinton Ham. Oh, yeah. Well, no, I've, I've moved on from the Quinton Ham thing. Ah. Just, just on, to, on to the Mark Williams thing. Well, I'll, I'll think... just go back to... I'll just yeah, go, go back on. To you go back to him, yeah. Um, here's the thing. He struck me as quite spoiled, actually. Um, and also, he was a perfect example of how you can get away with stuff if you're good looking, which he was. I mean, he could have been a massive star, Quinton. Um, I quite liked him, actually, in some ways, but he was very unprofessional in other ways, and quite rightly, in the end, was, was chucked off. Um, he, you know, all this stuff about, oh, he was a character. When people say that about people, what does it actually mean? He, he didn't behave properly, really. Yeah. And he, didn't, he didn't make the most of his potential. He had huge potential. Um, you know, we think of Neil Robertson as a, as a big star. Quinton could have, I'm not saying been as successful as Neil, but he could have won tournaments. He chose to take another path. It was a shame. Um, you know, he entertained people here and there, but really he didn't fulfil well, the potential he had in the game. Yeah, the other thing about him, of course, was the whole boxing thing. I mean, it was just yeah. a biz- bizarre twist, really, because he had had a bit of a row with Andy Hicks. He said he wanted to box against him. Andy Hicks obviously wasn't remotely interested, but then Quinton Hand ended up boxing against Mark King. And by some biz- pot whack, yeah. By some <laughs> bizarre quirk of fate, that somehow led to Quinton having a fight in Dublin against Johnny McGee, who was a Gaelic footballer. Now, I've no idea how those things happened. And I went along actually to cover it for television. And the night started with a succession of kids kickboxing fights and ended up with me somehow in the ring at the end of <laughs> Quinton's fight against Johnny McGee. And then I remember going, going down to the dressing room to interview him afterwards. And his manager was there because the, the decision had gone to Johnny McGee. Now, I'm no... Harry Carpenter, but even I knew that certainly yeah. it, it looked to another me like one, Quinton, Another one for the teenagers yeah, exactly. there. Yeah. Yeah. It certainly looked to me like Quinton had won the fight easily. Now, he didn't really care. He wasn't that bothered about winning or losing. Uh, but I remember interviewing his manager afterwards, George Barnby, I think was that his name? And I mean, he, I had to actually stop the interview three times because I said, look, you, you can't swear on camera and you know, you can't shout down the lens and that. Uh, so so that was an extraordinary... Uh, well, he, uh, he his juncture. manager... His manager, who ended up serving a writ on Mark Selby at the Welsh Open yeah. when he got into the building in disguise. This, this is all true, by the way. People are not making this up. He ended up as a, a, one of Britain's leading paparazzi. Um, and he was on a show over Christmas. There was a programme about sort of how modern celebrity has changed. And uh, he was on that. And he, he talking about sort of following the Beckhams around and, and various people. Um, I think this podcast will end up with you and me in the ring, actually. That's how it's all going to end up. But well, um, go on. Well, well, I was just going to say, with just, just just the wider question, just moving away from Quinton Han slightly, the, the question was about yeah. players who didn't fulfil their potential. The most extreme example for me was perhaps Stefan Mazrosis, who in the thriving amateur scene of the 80s looked like the best amateur in the world, or certainly one of them, turned pro and did almost nothing. He uh, beat Peter Ebden at the Crucible, but... That was completely out of out of kilter with the rest of his career, and for some reason it just never happened for him. And then the other thing about a player who had a potential to be a ranking event winner but never did it, it's hard to think of any glaring omissions. You could look at Kirk Stevens, but that was at a time when there weren't any ranking events, and Steve Davis won most of them. So I guess in terms of the best player not to have won a ranking event, there were a number of players that have been mentioned in that role over the last few years, players like Anthony Hamilton, Ryan Day, 
But it seems as soon as people say that about you in recent times, you go and win a ranking tournament. So perhaps we might have to go back as far as Darren Morgan, who got into the top eight but never actually won a ranking event. That's potentially the answer to that part of the question. I think Stefan Masrosis may well be the last player to blatantly drink alcohol at the Crucible. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, anyway, that's not necessarily uh, something you want on your on your obituary. Uh, anyway, so uh, we we did these people remember, you know, because we did so well with the qualifying predictions. By the way, Ian Burns never did qualify to play Yambing. No, Tau, funny was, that. Yeah, he, you've, you've glossed over that one. Yeah. Um, but we did predict the first round. Now, we're going to give ourselves Mark Selby because he's ate one up overnight. Yeah, it? I think so. Yeah, I did say last night, if he, if he loses that, I'll buy a hat and eat it. Uh, Murphy Davis is obviously the balance. So I worked out, I reckon... Uh, I've so uh, out of the 15 results uh, that, that we we think we've got, I've I've predicted 12. Uh, you've had 11. I mean that's not bad. That's, that's not pretty bad. good actually. Yeah. yeah, completely at odds with the qualifiers. It's just not been a first round of surprises. It's been very old school, hasn't it? I mean you think back to '93 when I think the first 15 matches, <coughs> excuse me, mm-hmm. all went the way of the seeded player. There was, only, there was only one of them was was won by a qualifier. So it's been uh, it's been very old style. Like that. So uh, we're not, yeah, we're not, we're, yeah, we're not going to predict the second round. But let's just look at the matches quickly. So we've got Ronnie O'Sullivan, Anthony McGill, Stuart Bingham, Jamie Jones, John Higgins, Mark Williams, Mark Allen in all likelihood against Mark Selby, uh, Neil Robertson against Jack Lazowski, Barry Hawkins against Karen Wilson, Yan Bing Tao against either Sean Murphy or Mark Davis, and Judd Trump against Dave Gilbert. Would it be fair to say best second round lineup ever? Yeah, yeah. Let, let's say that. Why not? You know, we, we like making the big calls on the Snooker yeah. Scene podcast. Usually the, the wrong is, ones, but anyway. Usually the wrong ones, but yeah. they're still big calls. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did tip Ding for the title. Yeah. But, um, you, you know, you like to see a few stories, a few upsets in the first round. We didn't see them really so far. But the payback for that is that then you get a second round lineup like that. I mean, every one of those looks fascinating and intriguing in its own way. And uh, it, it sets it up for a wonderful second week now. So okay, so Ding's gone out. Who's your tip? Mm. So, where, are you going back to Trump now, or who are you going? Who are you looking at? Well, I just I, look. That, that's the thing, okay. And I even said this when I tipped Ding. If you look at it logically, you have to tip Trump as the winner. But I just, you know, I don't see myself kind of, you know, walking through the mean streets of Cork City next week bragging to people about how I picked Judd Trump to win the World Championship. Not that anyone would want to hear. Anyway. I was going to say, yeah, that's, that's the, <laughs> as, a, as a vignette, that's quite disturbing anyway. But. Uh... Well, there you go. Everything about this podcast is disturbing. So, I don't know. I'll tell you what. I'm sorry, but I'm going to curse him again because I tipped him last year and he went out in the first round. At least that won't happen to him this time. Maybe Mark Allen. You know, maybe it's going to be his time. You know, he showed some flashes in the first round. And and also, there looked like there was room for improvement. And, you know, he still always looks to me like someone who could win it. And, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, he's, what, 35? If he's not 35 already, I think he turns 35 sometime this year. We talk about players like that, that time is running out for them to win the world championship. I don't think that's the case at all. I, I, you know, I, I think there's no reason why you couldn't be a first time world champion in your mid 40s. Because we've said this recently, that there's a perception that it's very difficult to prosper once you get much past the age of 40. But we think that because the previous generation did get swept aside when they reached that age. But that was only because the players coming up after them were so good. So I think these players have got plenty of time to do it. So. Why not go with Mark Allen? Maybe I could walk through the mean streets of Antrim telling people I tipped him if, 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 if he goes the distance. My advice is if you find yourself in mean streets, don't, don't <laughs> stop people and tell them what's, what your snooker predictions are. Okay, Just, just keep your counsel. Yeah. That would be my advice. Mm. Um, I just want to say one last thing. I've seen very little, and I mean very little, of the BBC coverage, but I just want to give a shout-out to Joe Perry, who I saw yesterday in the studio 
Uh, and Hazel Irvin asked him about the year, um, you know, that it had been for players. He gave a superb answer, I thought. Really interesting. Just sort of stuff maybe people wouldn't think about. He was saying that there are two types of player. Players who like to keep themselves themselves anyway. And players like him, who have always been quite gregarious, always hung around with other players, gone into the players' room, spent their time at tournaments relaxing that way. And he just said it's been difficult not to be able to do that. Steve Davis sort of shot it down a little bit. He used the, the, the term first world problems. But actually, he was asked a question. He gave a very good answer, just an mm. insight into what it's been like for a current player. And I think uh, Joe you know, has a very good future in, in punditry because I thought that's literally pretty much all I've seen of their studio. But I just thought, yeah, really interesting answer, giving an insight, not as a former player, what it might be like, but as a current player, what, what actually it is like. Well, St- Steve just hasn't forgiven Joe because it, isn't yeah. it true that Steve is the only player to have lost two black ball finishes at the Crucible? And <laughs> that, well, yeah. yeah, huge. Yeah, no, yeah. I think I, th- I think he is, and and it was Joe who what made the, him. What that. was the other one? What was the other I can't, one? <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember. There was some match in the eighties. Yeah. You know, there's yeah, some yeah. guy from County Tyrone. Trump will tell us. Judge Trump will tell us. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, no, but on a more serious level, you can understand why Joe would say that because actually, having spent time around him in players' rooms and at events, he's he's great fun to be around. Actually, in two ways, because he thinks about things and he has good, well thought out opinions about everything going on in the game. Plus, also, he's he's got a good sense of humour and he tells good he tells some very good stories actually about Neil Robertson. You know, nothing you know detrimental in any way, but just everyone knows the way Neil is and he's in his own world a little bit. That's probably why he's been so successful. But Joe obviously knows him very well and tells some very good stories about him. Uh, so, yeah, Joe, Joe's a very good talker on the game and, and obviously been a very, very good player. And, you know, he's never been involved in any controversy, any unpleasantness around the place. So uh, it's, it's great to see him as, as someone who uh, is, is being brought in to contribute his views. Yeah, and also, like, in some ways, he's not an obvious choice. He's not yeah. sort of, with the greatest respect, a massive star in the sense of a multi-world champion, whatever. But he's just obviously someone, like you say, with a lot of common sense to contribute. And uh, I'm sure he will continue. Well, the World Championship continues. Uh, we will pop up at some point, I'm sure, next week to uh, sort of update on the progress. I hope everyone is enjoying it. And uh, you can email us, snookercpodcast at mail.com, snookercpodcast at mail.com. We don't, obviously don't have much time to read them out, but they're all stacking up. And we'll get to them, no doubt, after the tournament, if, if not mm. during. Uh, so I guess we stop there. And... Uh, Hopefully everyone enjoys the second round. If Mark Selby does uh, lose, then the next podcast will feature me eating a hat. Um, I refer you to Paddy Ashdown at that time. Well, I can't remember which election it was because there were so many in a short period. But he, he said the exit poll was wrong. And if it was right, he would eat his hat. And it turned out it was right. And they had to get him a hat, uh, which obviously it was quite hard to eat. Um, the most shambolic end ever to a podcast. That's, I think so. Yeah, yeah, we'll give you that. Yeah. We'll, uh, it's been a long week. We'll, uh, we'll wrap up. Uh, goodbye, bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.